I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we make the underlying systems of oppression more apparent and come to see them not as pre-existing conditions of nature, but as constructs made of fear, power, and unquestioned legacies. It doesn't have to be this way. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the editor of Dangerous Minds, counterculture legend Richard Metzger. That's the thing. At root, it's like, I think that what we're looking at is this historical moment that we're in, and I think young people are quite hip to this, is that all of the ideas that have propped up capitalism in the 20th century been running out of steam for the last 20 years. It's been laid bare for all of them to see, and they don't want to participate in it anymore. Richard will be helping us envision what life may be like on the dole, and what that means for the future of the counterculture. It's time to intervene on behalf of the people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. What a moment we are living through. I know we're not going to solve institutional racism, the legacy of slavery, or the contradictions inherent to policing the poor, the oppressed, and people of color. But many people are beginning to see certain things differently. There's an opportunity here for progress. I've been arguing for the demilitarization of the police, and I realize there's problems with this argument. It's not enough. A better, more humane police force is still a police force with its history of oppression and racism. But, but hear me out. Right now, I feel like we are we are watching two kinds of police in action. By day, we see 
highly empathetic police officers kneeling and praying alongside members of the community. But by night, they're driving around in armored vehicles, donning riot gear and shooting rubber bullets and resorting to tear gas, something that's illegal in war, to tear gas as they corral and trample generally peaceful protesters who've opted to exercise their constitutional right to assembly. And it's well known in sociology and criminology circles alike, that it's the protect-and-serve style of policing that works to stem violence by opening channels of communication and even undermining institutional racism. The more militaristic style, that leads to more deaths on both sides. Yet there they are, using military-style maneuvers to trap peaceful demonstrators in parks or on bridges and then pelting them with flash bombs and pepper balls. And then they wonder why in all that chaos there's people breaking windows and stealing Nikes. You know, it's this military fetish, and it began... I was around for it. It began during Reagan's war on drugs when they passed this bill that the National Guard was allowed to go right into towns and assist cops. And that's really what got people used to seeing military hardware on city streets. And then by the 90s, Congress started authorizing the Pentagon to distribute its surplus military equipment to local police departments. They got M-16s and personnel carriers and, yes, grenade launchers, and they all made their way right into little baby local police arsenals. Then came 9-11, and the defense contractors started lobbying, right? They lobbied Congress for the funding of yet more military gear and SWAT teams and armored vehicles and military tactical training for even small-town police departments. And this is big money. They even got tactical training from Israeli and South African security experts. And those are places where there's literally enemy populations and occupied territories that they want to control. But the more militarized police don't actually make for a more secure or peaceful society. One study, and there's lots of them, one study showed that receiving the full supply of military equipment increases civilian deaths in a given county by 129%. So if the data shows more people die, why do we keep doubling down on this approach? Well, first off, tradition. The job of the very first police force in this country was not to serve people, but to round them up. It was the first formally paid police force in the United States, and it was founded in the Carolina colonies. It was founded there in 1704 in the form of slave patrols that would chase down runaway slaves and quell slave revolts. And even in the North, police were mostly thugs hired by merchants to protect shipments from vandals, like the revolutionaries involved in the Boston Tea Party, the people we now call heroes. It took over a century before America employed police for the purpose of actually protecting people and eventually serving them. And by the 20th century, they finally became understood to be civil servants. So now, replacing civil servants with grenade launchers is the wrong direction. Cops in 
tanks, wearing stormtrooper outfits. They don't look like human beings. We are more likely to throw rocks at them, and they're less likely to feel like human beings who are there to protect and serve us. There's a program called Campaign Zero, which is now controversial because there's various factions who think they didn't go far enough. But it was started by some of the activists associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was born out of the civilian protests in Ferguson and Baltimore and New York. And they've been pushing for a while now for more civil policing and documenting the reductions in violence. And what they found is that the better cops listen fairly and do what's called procedural justice, the better communities relate to them. Meanwhile, like stopping and frisking young men, that actually traumatizes them and it leads them to be more likely to do criminal activity in the future. I mean, think about it. If you're stopped and frisked by cops and held up against a wall and maybe hurt, how are you going to feel about them? How are you going to feel about about the way you're being seen? And will you be more likely to act out on that? I think so. Meanwhile, the less militaristic and provocative police are in their tactics, the more trust and cooperation they tend to get from civilians. And most important, for every 10 organizations other than the police focusing on crime in community life in a city, there is a 9% reduction in the murder rate, a 6% reduction in the violent crime rate, and a 4% reduction in the property crime rate. Community organizations other than police reduce crime in a community more than the police do. And that's pretty simple to understand. It's because calling guys with guns isn't the best solution for most problems. In fact, newer studies are showing that the more alternative civil servants are called to solve problems instead of cops, the better and less violent the outcomes. So if someone's acting crazy in the street, what are you going to do? Send a cop or send a psychiatrist or a social worker? There's some kids on your stoop who maybe should be in school. Send a truant officer or someone from child welfare. When you do that, when you send people without guns, less people get shot and fewer black people die. And it's easy to tell police to act more like civil servants, but they can only do so, the best of them anyway, they can only do so in the context of a greater civil society. They need the support of other civil servants, experts in drug abuse, domestic disputes, youth counseling, uh, truancy, homelessness, and, and so on. By the time someone calls the cops for a problem, it's usually too late. It's like when someone goes to the emergency room because they haven't been getting medical care all along. You may as well be calling in the National Guard. And where are all those alternative civil servants? They're largely eliminated or underfunded by budget cuts. Money that's being spent on military gear for the inevitable crises that befall members of a society without civic institutions or the sensibilities that they engender. This just puts more burden on police officers who become more racist and want more military hardware. And so the cycle of violence, othering, protest, and militarization keeps continuing. When a young man denied social services eventually reaches a point of crisis, he ends up facing a cop. And if he's black, that can mean death. 
you know, there is federal money for this. But social workers don't have the same post-9-11 lobbying force on K Street as the corporations making grenade launchers and armored vehicles for cops, or the ones that own prisons in which to incarcerate the survivors. They have no interest in peaceful outcomes. Right? The market sees civics the way Margaret Thatcher saw society. There is no such thing. Civil servants can only exist in a civil society. And a civil society requires servants trained in civility. Yes, they owe us a living. So says my friend of 25 years, Richard Metzger. My conversation with him took place in the week before the murder of George Floyd, when the primary concern in the headlines was COVID. But the underlying concerns were still the same, from economic inequality to racial injustice. Still, I think it comes off as a hopeful conversation, which is something we do need about now. It's maybe something of a, of a silver lining conversation about how the counterculture, or maybe we should call that culture itself, thrives in what might otherwise be considered the worst of times. Part of the reason I'd wanted you on the show for so long was that, you know, we spent this long, wonderful day in flushing Chinatown, walking around. And, yeah. and um, you were talking a lot about the counterculture and what felt like the demise of the counterculture, the loss right. of the record store that you'd walk to, the little bookstore where you'd find Burroughs and Geisen and Genesis yeah. and become part of a, get initiated into something that that sort of gone for a lot of reasons. I guess it, it was mall culture hurt it and, you know, the mm -hmm. real estate prices hurt it. Do you still think about, about that? No, you don't. No, I don't. I mean, it's just every time moves on. It's like, I mean, you know, it's like with, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of living at the time of the, uh, you know, we're like the, the rock gods of the sixties are, are rapidly dying. Right. And soon there won't be any of them. You know, I, I don't think that like in 20 years time, you would be able to sell Neil Young, for instance, to young people. But my wife came in the other day. I was playing um, Barbara Streisand and um, Barry Gibb, whatever that song is called. Right. A Woman in Love. That's right. the song. And she and she and, and, and as it's over and I'm just sitting there in the chair in my stereo room and listening and, it, and my whole body is vibrating at the brilliance of that song. And she goes, you know what? When guys your age are dead, no one's going to care about this stuff. <laughs> And she's, yeah. she's not wrong. Well, I don't care about the specific content. I mean, and Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand hardly count as, you know, counterculture in the way that Genesis Peorage did. I guess what I'm wondering is, we did DisinfoCon in 1999, and it felt like there was a, a counterculture that, that was spanning generations with, you know, Robert Anton Wilson and Kenneth Anger on the one end of that spectrum, and me and Grant and you on the sort of younger end of that, and uh -huh. Genesis in the middle, maybe. Yeah. And do you feel like there's a still... A, a counterculture at all in that sense? No, 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 I don't. I mean, if, no, the, the, I mean, Genesis is kind of, he was the connection to the, to Burroughs and Geisen and to the Beatniks, right? And when, when, with Genesis gone, that connection, as it were, snuffs out. You know what I mean? There are people who have touched their hands and shaken their, their are, are no longer with us. But I don't, no, I don't, I don't, I think it's kind of died out. But the counterculture came back when we came out of 
college or should have. There was the slacker moment. There was the recession or whatever it was in the late 70s yeah. or early 80s when none of us thought we'd have a job and didn't really care. Or you were in England, you could live on the dole and Blondie and the Ramones were happening. And there was an East Village, New York counterculture. There was, yeah. you know, Penny Arcade. Well, it, was, and, it was cheap to live there. It right. was very cheap to live in New York. Then. I mean, you could, get a, you could get an apartment in New York City until about 1983 for about 160 bucks, for between 160 and 400 dollars a month. You know, you don't, you, you don't have to worry about keeping a roof over your head if 40 dollars a week is all you have to come up with. Right, and now you need a trust fund to live in Bushwick. You know, because if you look at somebody like Timothy Leary after he died, you never, you didn't hear about him again. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, he's dead now. Those ideas that he had, all of these great ideas that were, like, turning us on when we were teenagers, those ideas kind of died out. It was the same way that, like, when Buckminster Fuller died, right? I remember thinking, like, you know, he was, I mean, nobody remembers Buckminster Fuller, but while he was still alive, he was like Einstein. He was like, there was Einstein and there was Buckminster Fuller. That These were the guys that you held up as being, like, the great idea of a genius. What is a genius? Was the, and then nobody remembers who he, he was, you know, just within just a few years after his death. So I don't think that this stuff continues on. I mean, William Burroughs, I think, has, because there's something about him that's just, he's an icon of cool. It's a thing that only he has. It's not the memory of the counterculture that we knew that I'm so concerned about as mm -hmm. the continuance of a counterculture at all. In other words, what are they doing? What is independent music and poetry and thought? The kids who are going on TikTok are not looking for independent counterculture. They're looking for 17 million followers, right? There's no, there's no such thing as counterculture there. It's a kind of a culture. I mean, counterculture, you know, as seen, you know, from the future will just be seen as really a culture. Right. And does that mean we won, though? You know, what we were trying to say, what I was trying to say in that first DisinfoCon lecture, that we won, the counterculture has won. We are now the overculture. Well, you know, legal pot, gay marriage, I mean, all of these kind of things that the beatniks would have wanted Right. Um, but I mean, capitalism is still around, so I can't say that I don't think that that's true. That's the thing. At root, it's like I think that, that what we're looking at, this historical moment that we're in, and I think young people are quite hip to this, is that all of the ideas that have propped up capitalism in the 20th century have been running out of steam for the last 20 years. It's been laid bare for all of them to see, right. and they don't want to participate in it anymore. I mean, it's, it, there's nothing, it, there's literally nothing in it for them, if you see what I'm saying, because the bones of it have been picked clean. Right. Well, you know, getting back to your counterculture thing, two thoughts did occur to me about moving forward is one is I think that there's, uh, you know, part of counterculture, obviously, because it doesn't just isn't just like beatniks and, and psychedelic drugs, but it goes all, it goes on through punk rock and, you know, indie rock and all these other things. Someone like Lux Interior is unlo there's, it's unlikely for there to be another Lux Interior or another Genesis Purge anytime soon. Because I think a lot of what made you know those two individuals and, and other sort of strong personalities like that is that they had there was some underlying mental difference, more extreme personalities, and that gets I think whittled down and sanded off with psychiatric drugs that they're giving uh, people at a younger age. I would say that just in my interaction with college students, they seem to be kind of level-headed. I don't feel like I'm dealing with a lot of neurotics that our generation was a bit more weird. And also, I mean, drugs in our generation, it was such an illegal thing that it 
it kind of engendered a little bit more paranoia and neurosis. Well, yeah, no, it did. But, but, but the thing is, my, I, I should have said this, is that I think that in the past, people were medicating, self-medicating with, with illicit drugs, hard drugs or whatever. And now that because they are being given at a young age psychiatric drugs, they are maybe not moving towards that. Right. Maybe. I mean, on some levels, it should make them more open because they're like, oh, I understand how drugs and consciousness and all this kind of work. But it's also, you know, drugs are, are so much more utilitarian now. I mean, even the, God bless them, you know, the microdosing people and micropollin right. and all that. I'm sounding irresponsible, but it's like, gosh, you know, take the thrill out of drugs. I mean, why don't you? You know, so I can't just... Huh do a fucking hit of acid or take a handful of mushrooms. Now I'm meeting it out milligram by milligram in order to optimize in some Tim Ferriss way. I could take the perfect amount of psilocybin in order to get the, the number of the maximum number of keystrokes out of myself. Well, I mean, you know, God bless them. I mean, it is, it is an interesting development that people are doing that, I think. But I mean, you know, I, I, the Bohemia is going to have to find cheap real estate, which it always has, hasn't it? The real Bohemia. Let's think of it like San Francisco in, this, in 1966 becomes this strange attractor for young people, right? A good friend of mine was 17 during the summer of love and made his way from Virginia to San Francisco because he wanted to be where the action was. Right, it called his name. He wanted to be there, and um, you know, and he wanted to be around hippie chicks and free love and drugs and rock and roll and all of these things. But this is this is where I'm going to go and, and 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 hang out there. So you know, that needs to happen again. That I think that that will happen again. I think there will be certain charismatic younger people who will probably be the ones who will attract others into an orbit. And, and, and some city that we don't even know of, we're not even thinking about right now. It might, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's not Austin, Texas, but it's just outside of Austin and some, you know, or whatever. I mean, something is going to happen. It has to because there's, there are young people and they're creating more young people all the time and they need some place to go. The, the interesting thing about it, like with teaching film students is that right now, and it's like they, even though they don't have money and they don't necessarily have you know, career paths that are that obvious that they would have had even just a few months ago, that what they do have going for them is that they have the tools. Where even, you know, like a few years ago, you didn't have the tools. And now you've got something most people can, you know, find some way to get their hands on if they're motivated, a camera that would be, you know, like Netflix has a certain number of cameras that they approve of. If you're going to shoot for Netflix, you have to use one of these you know, between six and 10 different models. This is what they approve of, right? But those, and, and to get your hands on something like that and to be able to make a show or to make it, you can do it. It can be done. And here's a good example of counterculture sort of turning up in a place where it nece shouldn't necessarily have turned up in, but whereas where a few charismatic individuals were able to create a scene, John Waters and Divine in Baltimore. And so, so it's, that, that kind of thing could and should happen. And hopefully that will be happening. And, and, you know, people will be able to make, you know, you know, not, I would say like a one man film, but you know, like that kind of thing where there's a more personal vision than they would get going through the Hollywood system, which is not, you know, not necessarily going to be available to them right. anymore. And I'm thinking in some ways, there's a countercultural bottom up artistic opportunity that's going to come out of this crisis that wasn't really there before. Well, I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, it's like there's any time of societal t 
attention tends to produce great art. So these these times of you know high pressure in society, the '60s, you know, the Vietnam War, and it's inevitable that something like that will happen in a, in a time like this. I mean, there's, I mean, we could be moving again into some kind of darkly fascistic sort of future where you know a new kind of punk rock counterculture comes out of that. Or one of the things that I, I that I find really interesting is I've been um, looking into like Harry Potter. Right, any the, the sort of post Harry Potter generation is really interesting to look at because the kids who you know I, I mean, how would somebody would be now I guess between twenty five and twenty eight thirty whatever you know they were read to them when they were kids you know they've polled people who read those books and they found that they are they tend to be much more open they're much more liberal they are opposed to racism or fascism or or violence and these kind of things but they're they're very idealistic. But the other thing about that is, is that those same kids who are finding a sort of idealism, but also an interest in magic and an interest in the, and the idea that, oh, the universe is fluid and I can do certain things. And though it's also become popular with, you know, what you would consider the, the other side, right? I mean, you know, the cult of Keck and the use of, of magic and, and yeah. meme, meme magic by the alt-right yeah. is pretty interesting, too. That begs the question then, Right. So you say, where's the new counterculture? What if it's a reaction to the old counterculture, which assumed leftism, Marxism, you know what I mean? The, right. the kind of socialism. And, and became so pervasive and dominating that the rebellion against wokeness and, yeah. and political correctness. Yeah, exactly. So it's, Wein, it's, it's Brett Weinstein and the intellectual dark web. Here's another kind of new counterculture. Fringe religions. You know what I mean? Like right. cults. I think there's, there's, there certainly will be more um, communal living moving forward with young people. I think that's just a given. And when that kind of thing happens, there tends to be some kind of, you know, leader that comes out of that. There's going to be all kinds of weird mutations and weirdness coming out of all of this. You know, you could look at ISIS as a counterculture. Sure. It's just not what I consider counterculture. <laughs> Well, no, that's the thing is, but you're, but we we can't look at it. You know, you can't the idea that oh, he's the new William Burroughs. It's like there isn't a new William Burroughs in the next generation. Right. There's just not, and there's not going to be a Genesis Purich in the next generation. I mean, that's just you're you're talking about you know freakish individuals, but you know accidents of DNA. It's interesting though, because sometimes I feel like this is something that we've been talking about for 20 years and that in, in large part, the original DisinfoCon was about at least sort of my talk and, and, and Grant Morrison's talk to some extent is, uh, and, and what Are You Serious talks about today is, is, is did Operation Mindfuck work too well? In other words, did, you know, Robert oh. Anton Wilson and Abby Hoffman and all of us who, who used conspiracy theory in order to destabilize the bourgeois to say, oh, LBJ penetrated JFK's exit wound on the airplane, you know, from Texas, yeah. or we're going to levitate the Pentagon, or we're, we put acid in the New York City drinking water, you know, that now we see, oh, you know, Joe Scarborough murdered someone, or the virus is itself a patented invention of, of Tony Fauci, and he's in a pact with Bill Gates to come up with a vaccine where Fauci yeah. will get the money and Gates will get to put in the nanos. I mean, and I've said it before on this show, I have neighbors in my town who believe this, who will show me it's the money. Look, there's $700 million went to Fauci. And so, I mean, some of this is, is a more, I mean, it's not creative necessarily, but it requires a smarter person in some ways to even engage with a fantasy of that, 
of that complexity. It, it comes down to media literacy, you know what I mean, by and large. I mean, it was easy to see that, you know, in the early days of the commercialized Internet, that something did, you know, was going to look like, you know, just text on a white background and, you know, was misspelled and blah, blah, blah. And there was a P.O. box that you know, was... You know, you would take that with a grain of salt, and then suddenly something comes along, and it, it's designed, and it's got, you know, it's slick and everything. And then people, and it, or it has advertising, which is one of the ultimate sort of, you know, signifiers of, oh, this must be legitimate. Right, or it's coming out of the president's mouth, or on Fox News, <laughs> yes, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. But it, it seems to me that this, this aggressive stupidity that's, that's on the rise, you know, that's the other thing, too, is we, have, we can quantify it. We know exactly how much of the population is this fucking dumb, right? So what is it? It's the great IQ stratification. It, is, it comes down to this and just this. It is smart people versus dumb people, okay? On one hand, you have people who would like to change things, who think that capitalism is maybe a bad idea, who would like to invest in trying to save the ecology, right? On the other hand, you have people who are literally a fucking evolutionary dead end. But a true dead end. Yeah, dead. <laughs> it should die off. <laughs> no, but that's the thing is, yeah, well, that's the thing is, I mean, there's, there's, what is the use for someone like that anymore? In, 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 in terms of evolution, what is the use for them well, anymore? There's, I mean, there, there's the human being beneath the, that mindset. And the mindset <laughs> comes in some ways from a legitimate place. I mean, there, no, there maybe not a deep state that was trying to, you know, invent a Russia-Trump thing, whatever. I don't know. But it's not that. But there is a deep state. I mean, we saw Iran-Contra. We saw the training of the guys who did 9-11. We understand neoliberalism and globalism. So there's a grain of, in some sense, of political truth to the Trump side of politics. He's just not articulating it intelligently or appropriately. It's as if he doesn't even understand his own arguments. Of this, I have no doubt. But, but how do you deal with somebody like my mother-in-law who says, I don't believe in that? I know. I mean, that is a mind that has been slammed shut. I know, know but the interesting hard. thing is when I see it, I'm like, wow, back to Timothy Leary, you know, and, and challenge authority, trust no one, say no, just say no. And I'm like, oh, wow, that on a certain level, if there's no faith, if there's no trust in our authorities, then uh, wow, look where it goes. And there's no faith in science. There's no faith in, in anything. I mean, so where do we go with that? You know, it's, it's hard. I mean, so on a certain level, I, I get it. I mean, I have a, a certain amount of respect for people who can stare the New York Times in the face or whatever and say, I don't believe anything on there. And to be fair, I, I, I'm reading article after article where they're really misusing data in order to present one argument or another. I watch CNN or MSNBC, and they take some little Trump joke. You're like, oh, I'm the chosen one. And they play it again and again and again out of context and try to say that he thinks he's Christ. Or they take what he, when he asked about, you know, disinfectants internally somehow working. They say, oh, Trump's telling everyone to drink Lysol. He's not telling everyone to drink Lysol. So... You know what I mean? It's like when the side, supposed side of truth is so untrustworthy itself, you know, it's no wonder that we have people trusting nothing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, with him, the president of the United States is a fucking buffoon. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I think that they should be able to report <laughs> that and say that. Right, you know, but I mean, the I mean, facts there's no, good there'd enough. Be no doubt that they don't, they don't need to exaggerate anything. Just keep saying, look, he's saying that Joe Scarborough murdered somebody. 
you don't really need much more than that. You know, or he's saying, don't wear a mask. He's, he's teasing a reporter for wearing a mask, even though it's his administration that's telling people to wear masks. It's like, what, what is this? Well, the Scarborough thing is an interesting case. I mean, did you hear the, what Rush Limbaugh said about it on his show yesterday? No. Sort of the same thing that you're saying in the sense that, oh, he was just trying to wind people up and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, that doesn't, I mean, imagine, it's, 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 it's unimaginable, though, that someone could, tra- could traffic in something so stupid, so coarse, and so unbelievably misdirected at a time, you know, when, uh, you know we're just now 100,000 people are, have died, you know? It's- but it works, right? So it's, not, it's no more Trump's fault than the 30, 40% of people, whatever it is, that go with that. And if that's true, if it actually works, then there's some bizarre way we could argue that Trump is a teacher. I mean, a negative teacher. But it's like, if you can fall for this, if you could go well, like, there... Well, like Buddhist, like Buddhist crazy wisdom? Yeah, exactly. Crazy wisdom. I mean, he's just crazy, crazy. But the fact that we could go along with it, I mean, maybe Trump, I mean, ideally is the way that we as a civilization inoculate ourselves from this kind of insanity. But, you know, we've tried before. It's like Hitler didn't inoculate you know, the world from, from fascism or dictatorship either. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it it let's put the it could go either way. Yeah, all bets are off. Anything can happen. It can go either way, right? Right. And truly, anything. Then that's and that that's yeah, positive. Anything. I'd rather believe that anything can happen than you know six months ago, just the doom of civilization seemed completely inevitable. Now it feels like something could turn on a dime. Because it has already turned on a dime, right? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, the future is going to be more socialist. I don't see how there's any way around that. The structural changes in this country, not just in the way that we work, but in the in in the contract, shall we say, that the elites make with the the man on the street. You know, do they owe us a living? Of course they do. This time is pregnant with a lot of possibility. But yeah, it can go either way. But it, but even when, you know, even not even thinking about it long term, but even short term, when someone says like, oh well, who do you think is going to win the election? I don't know if they, anything could happen. They could, but, but Biden and Trump and Bernie, they could all be dead by November. You know what I mean? It could be Gavin Newsom running. I mean, we have no idea. Yeah. I mean, anything could change in this in this scenario, especially if if Trump is dead set on having a Republican convention and you know putting 10,000 people to get that kind of cattle call. Yeah, God knows how, how many will be alive between August and, and November when the election happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because he believes so I'll, that I'll taking you know, quinine and lying in his tanning bed is killing any, uh, any bugs on the surface. Well, so far it's working for him. Seems to be. You know? <laughs> you know, yeah. COVID really has kind of, it, it's made the, the workers and the consumers really look like two different classes. Do you know what I mean? It's really, it's really showed, as you would say, you know, which side of the fork the working class is on. Oh, yeah. Well, no, here's a great example, right? Kroger, the in, local corporation, right? The Kroger Corporation of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I used to work when I was, when I was uh-huh. in, high school, in high school, not on the corporate level, but as a bagger, right? But I was a member of the, you know, that, the grocery workers union, whatever it was called. So, you know, I know I have a certain amount of sympathy for that situation. So if you look into that, you can see it's just it's a, such, such a perfect example of like, OK, how how did how did we get to where we are right now? The guy who's the CEO, I think he makes uh, has a salary of like two million dollars and between stock options and gifts and um, 
bonuses that he gets for lowering cost, right? He makes 12 million a year, right? Mm. So this is the guy who makes the decisions about, oh, remember that $2 an hour uh, hero bonus that you were getting for the last eight weeks? We're going to discontinue that in a couple weeks. Well, obviously it's in his benefit to do so because if he can keep costs down, he gets a higher bonus at the end of the year. I mean, think about how, I mean, my God, that's such a adversarial scenario to be in and yeah. with other people, with other humans. It's just, it's so, it's so vile. Oh, it's outrageous. But that, I was obviously, that's been happening before, before COVID, you know, A&P, remember A&P, the, uh, yeah. the New York based uh, grocery store chain, they um, realized that the board realized they were going out of business. So they raided the uh, employees pension fund and paid themselves giant bonuses, Ugh. then went bankrupt, and then said they didn't have the money for the pensions, and uh, all, all the stuff the employees had been there 40 years end up not getting their severance or their pension. I mean, and that's just, it's not even accidental. This is planned. This is like, uh-oh, you know, things are going south. Let's rob. <laughs> Let's rob all the money. Empty all the cash, cash boxes so that the uh, uh, people don't get it in bankruptcy. This is all part and parcel of that. When you come to the realization that, my God, this is so starkly either the beginning of the end or the beginning of something better. And, and it really, there's no indication at this point of which way it's going to go or how it's going to work. The only possibility that seems really unlikely is that things go back to how they were. <laughs> That's impossible. That's impossible. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, both of us, they, they entrust us to shape the minds of young people, right? And I was thinking about this, and it's like to get out of, to graduate from college right now and to have gone from, oh, I'm going to, you know, like as, you know, some of my students were saying, like, oh, I'm going to, I have this internship at the blah, 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 in New York or this advertising agency in San Francisco, or they had plans to, you know, move to LA to become actor or whatever. They're, but they, all of these plans are now on hold. There's, and it's not just that, that it's like their careers, their entire careers are on hold. It, you know, one, we're talking about like, what does it look like in the future? One thing that it does seem to me will, will be the case. And I think it's most certainly going to be the future is it's going to look a lot like Thatcher's Britain. There's going to be a lot of unemployment, especially with young people. There's going to, I think there's, I think there's rents going to be a lot cheaper in a lot of places. I think there's going to be a lot of people hanging around you know, like a, another bohemian culture will sort of... Right. On a certain level, I don't mean to make light of it, but it's a fun culture. I mean, when I got out of college, there were no jobs. The, the you know, well, we're both part of the sort of Generation X or early Gen X. The whole point was to get slack, you know? Rick Linkletter's slacker movie, The Way They Lived, was sort of what I was aspiring yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, li I lived in squats. Right. You know, when I was, when I was in my late teens. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, I live that way. And, and it, it seems like some level of communal living or, you know, where there are cities where there's a lot of, you know, there's a downtown that's that's gone to waste or there are, you know, industrial buildings. Younger people could take them over and sort of, you know, brick walls up and just sort of make rooms and have co share communal showers and stuff like that. I mean, these are going to be the options. If they want to get out of their parents' house or, you know, it's, it's just I'm saying like there for a long time, there's going to be a, a lot of young people who are going to have very little money. Seems obvious that there's going to have to be some level of universal basic income for young people. 
as of today, what, 42 million people are unemployed out of a workforce of, what, 180 million, maybe a little bit less than that? I mean, that's, that is grim. That is grim. But it's only grim in a world where we need employment in order to be sustainable. In other words, I've deconstructed it in so many books. I mean, my listeners are tired of it, but the idea that employment was invented in the 11th and 12th century as a way of disconnecting people from the value they were creating, that you're not allowed to have a small shop or a small business. You've got to work for the man by the hour. And at this point, when we have enough stuff, which we do, we have enough places to live, we have enough food coming out of the ground, the only reason to have a job is to justify having a, a portion of the spoils not because we need the work that person's going to going to create. But it's also about more as a concept, almost more, even experientially more. Do I need to see another concert? Do I need to see... And I'm not saying I want to die, nothing like that, but the acquisition of experiences, the, uh, doing travel to other places, I realized, wow, it was in such excess. But this whole, you know, this co- the amount of travel people have done, oh, next year we're going to Alaska, and the year after that we're doing Tuscany, and then we're going... It's like, wait a minute, what? no human being should be allowed to have all these experiences. You don't even need them. It, it almost negates the enchanted quality of the experience you're already having to constantly be looking for this next thing, whether it's a next acquisition or a, a new, you know, a new paid for experience. You know, you get older also, you don't feel like traveling as much. It's a pain in the ass. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, nobody feels, you, you know, you yeah. know more than, than anybody. And, um, and I certainly feel that way. If I ne- I've never had to be in an airport again, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? I'm right. I, perfectly okay with that. But the problem is, is that look at a city like Venice, for instance. You know what I mean? Like without that, that, that velocity, you know, people traveling through that city and, and spending money as they do so and then leave and then more come in or Las Vegas, you know what I mean? Or any of these cities that are just, it's all about tourism, right? They're going right. to dry up. I mean, money is the, is the water of Las Vegas. And if that money goes away, that's a desert town that is going to dry up, you know, but it's not just that. It's just like anything that involves the public. So it's sports, it's restaurants, it's bars, it's all of this. Who is going to feel comfortable eat, sitting in a restaurant and eating six feet away from somebody? Well, it's not forever though, right? Isn't there like a vaccine in a year or two or it goes away like Spanish flu and we don't worry? I mean, hopefully it does and probably it will at, at, a, at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. But the thing is, those restaurants on the other end of that are not open anymore. Think about the idea that like in Ohio, you have, you're being forced to go back to work and if you won't, your employer can snitch on you. To whom? To this, to this government, so you won't get unemployment insurance. Oh, because you could be going back to work. Yeah. So, you know, so if you said, I, you know, I have asthma, I don't think I should be doing this, and your boss says, well, you know, they, they, they have the option of turning you in. Think about that. That's breathtaking, isn't it? That's, that's actually happening. But that, that, is, that is it. I mean, if, if that's not a kind of a slave labor, I don't know what is. You, even, if you, even, if this, even if this might kill you, come in. You know, and Amazon treating its employees the way it did and the meat factories shoving everybody together and, and then docking their pay or not giving them hazard pay and just, you know, treating it yeah. as if this is their job when they're, you know, risking their lives to get, as one guy in a Times article, you know, to pack dildos for people in lockdown. 
Yeah, for real. I mean, you know, the thing about it is, is organized labor could come back in a big way and probably will. I think that that's one thing that that seems so likely that, I mean, I, 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 again, I don't want to make any predictions because I'm so bad at it, but that does seem like it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a rise in organized labor because it's pretty obvious who's doing the real work. And, and, and there's a power in that knowledge. It's been laid very, very bare. It's like, you know, the, the covers have been pulled back and we know who's in the bed. You know, and, and there's and also the, the sort of parasitical relationship of the elites to the work that's being done by these people. So I would certainly anticipate that, you know, in, instead of somebody getting, getting a new roof put on, they might have some tin and some tar. I think we're going to see, again, lot, you know, older cars on the road. There's going to be a certain, you know, tattiness to people's lives. They're, yeah. just not, you know, you're, it's, they're going to be making do with what they've got. So well, I just think America's going to look a lot more like Cuba, maybe right, in that but, way. You but know? we no longer, I mean, most of the stuff we have is not serviceable the way the 1957 Chevys down in Cuba are. You know, you pop open the hood of your car, <laughs> it's a computer in there. You can't, yeah, you true. know, there's no points and plugs and stuff. I guess there's plugs in there somewhere, but you can't do anything anymore. You know, the, the way we used to, you can't fix a stereo component or a computer the way you could, you know, a, a radio. You you know, when we're kids, right. when I was a little kid, it was tubes and transistors that you could solder things. It was a different hands-on world. And now, you know, boy, uh, if we're going to go back to that, we're going to have a very different kinds of stuff as well. Well, people are going to be driving junkers, you know. I mean, that's, I think that's just going to be the reality of it. Well, I mean, some people will be, not everyone. That's our, that's our immediate future. I'm trying not to be apocalyptic, but it definitely feels like a. this is the cascade, you know, where we, we can't recover from one thing before the next thing happens. And I'm waiting for the third and the fourth and the fifth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one black swan after another. Until these are no longer black swans. I mean, the black swan would now be the great thing happening. The black swan. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're showing up all over the place. <laughs> Watch out for the pink swan. There you go. I, I just want to repeat what I was saying before. Is it all? I really feel that all bets are off. You know, it's like like my wife this morning. I said, "Hey, I just want to say again, Trump might be dead. You know, he could get COVID nineteen and die next week. You have, you know, happened to Boris Johnson. It could happen to him. He's not taking precautions. Exactly. But the the bigger question that you were getting to in some ways, and it's ultimately it's the crass question. The the is do they owe us a living? Yeah, yes, they, of course they fucking do. <laughs> no, but of course they do. I mean, that's the thing is, if you're going to have a system like the, the one that is currently set up, where Jeff Bezos are able to skim off some kind of payment from every bit of commerce that is done right. through their you know, retail monopolies that they, that they own, I mean, that's, that's bizarre. It is, and behind people them... People are willing to put up with right, that. And behind them is a banking system which is making money off their money. You know, <laughs> you know and, and, just, and just and well, and creating it out of thin air, right? You know, the, the, you know, I mean, like the whole financialization thing. Where's that going to go in, in the in the future economy? I mean, it, well, what what use is it for that? It's like, you know, and it, imagine some kind of post-apocalyptic society, and and they're trying, you know, there's there's a bunch of people standing around trying to figure out what each one does and how they can contribute to it. And it's like if someone said that they were a stock trader, wouldn't you shoot them in the face? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know. know. So, what do you think that we, as the sort of outgoing 
counterculture generation. What what can we say to the incoming one? What what advice do you have for kids who would otherwise have been at St. Mark's Books and Bleecker Bobs and the DisinfoCon and the other sort of geographical, almost physical places and and communal spots for the counterculture who are now spread across the country. There are no record stores. There's barely any comic shops. They've got an internet. I mean, sort of what's the way to maintain? How do they carry the torch forward when it's so much harder to be initiated into a working counterculture? Well, I mean, that. Well, I mean, it sort of presupposes that there would be some sort of space to do it in, a physical space to do it in. So that that's the kind of the thing that it's like you, access to other people, to other minds. You know, I mean, one of the things that like I always tell this to every class I ever teach. It's like, do you want to know the secret of success? It's already been written out for you. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just go and read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. You know what I mean? And all of those. All of those things, I mean, that, you know, that William Burroughs loved that book, you know what I mean? It's uh, Mitch Horowitz has written about Napoleon Hill recently. Whatever the truth is about his real life, and not to go off on a tangent about that, but he was basically a sort of a con man. He came up with these ideas, which, which you know, were somewhere in the air and somewhere his, but it was codified in a way that if you read that book and you do what he says, you will be a successful person. And it works for both sides, though. I mean, that the thing could grow rich. Napoleon Hill and Norman Vincent Peale are also Donald Trump's, uh, you know, main touchstones. Well, it, that's true. I mean, I, I would, I would, I would make a distinction between Peale and and Hill, though. You know what I mean? One of them is more aspirational, and 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 you know, and uh, you know, uh, the wishing for that kind of thing. Where I think whereas Napoleon Hill's program is very, very you know, to the point and it works, but if you, but, but the things that he talks about, right, that's what I mean. It's like those books are in some ways indistinguishable from books of high magic, right? I mean, he's really telling you like, okay, this is, this is what you want to do. And that includes things like you need collaborators, right? So if you cannot collaborate in a in a real life space with somebody, you better find your collaborators online and in an era of social distancing and who knows how much longer this will last. It could be a long time. It might not be, but there will be even in the future. There'll be some sort of hybrid online and offline life. I mean, clearly things like zoom are now being adopted. Like, you know, people love them and they're having group chats with their friends and they're, you know, all of those things that people have been doing and getting into, I think during the the lockdown, they're still going to do. But in terms of like young people, like finding the counterculture, I mean, it's online, you know, if they're, if they are, they're participating in in a conversation, a very, you know, worldwide conversation, if they're on, you know, Twitter or, or on Facebook, you know, they, they, they can see what's happening. I mean, I do think it's important though, like I say, for them to network. And and if it's not possible to do that in real life, that to do it online is is the option, but just, I would say to try to make a difference to try to make things better because it, I mean, it could steer either way. And if the collective site, if the group mind is saying, look, we have to move towards health and that might be the vision that wins the day over the fearful, you know, racist, you know, just this horrible other impulse that's going on in what seems to be almost, you know, a different kind of, 
person. But I do like the message to the, to the young counterculture now is it's not about the counterculture that you find. You know, it's about the counterculture that you do. Oh, you got to make your own scene. That, I mean, that's what I was saying. I mean, if you, I mean, one way to become a part of a scene that is that does exist that you know exists that you can plug into, it would be to you know to join like a you know socialist party of America, you know what I mean, or something like that, or that kind of thing, or or, or indeed the Democratic Party if you think you want to work that way. But to join up with other people is a way to do that. But if you need a counterculture scene and there's no William Burroughs club or something, you know, <laughs> or punk club or whatever, then find the others, you know, find find other people to work with and make your own counterculture. How do you think any counterculture scene started, whether it was in, you know, Cincinnati or Shaker or Atlanta or New York is a few people got together and made it happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Like I say, I don't, I don't see it happening in New York. Where it's going to happen, that's you know, that's something that it's, that would be difficult to predict too. It's, there's got to be places, you know. Some there's, there's. I mean, it happened in Cincinnati. There was a, there's, the downtown here was so destroyed and so crime ridden and just so horrible with the zip code, right? For the downtown Cincinnati, was the the most dangerous zip code in the United States. It was a place where you were most likely to get murdered or have some kind of violent crime or some kind of crime uh, against your person. Here's the thing, right? But the buildings that were there were not occupied. They tended not to have people living in them. They were living on the streets outside of them, but they weren't actually living in these buildings. These buildings had been warehoused and they'd been there for decades unused for various reasons that I won't get into. But what they did, I think this happened about 10 years ago, they said, okay, if you, have the, if you can prove that you have the money to rehab this building, you may buy it for, I think it was $50,000. And if you, once you had done that, you could buy a second one, I think it was a dollar. You know, if you have the money to rehabilitate this, we're going to practically give it to you. And so they were able to completely refurbish this downtown area. And people who had, you know, were not you know, big real estate investors found themselves – in a, in a really prime position to make a lot of money. And that, it, so it happened in the space of about, like I say, five years, 10 years ago, and it's now completely built up and there's like a nice hotels there and nice restaurants and stuff like that. But not far away from that area are, are a bunch of, you know, factories, disused factory buildings. And it, and it, it, you, you have to think like, okay, something could happen in a really big building like that. So maybe it's a situation where, you know, you have to sort of build it and then they will come, right? Maybe it is that kind of thing. But if young people would get together, find ways that they could, you know, maybe the city would say to them or they could convince the city, hey, will you let us do this so we can rehabilitate this for this purpose? The answer might be yes. They could you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. But that kind of thing, I mean, if you, if you were able to do something like that in a, in a you know, not in, in, not in one of the coastal cities, but in a, in a secondary city, you know, if it's outside of Nashville or if it's outside of Memphis or that kind of thing, that's a vision I think that young people might want to, you know, sort of invest in. You need a new ecosystem. We're, we're, we're right now, those ecosystems have been dried up. You need, you need new ecosystems. So to start new social ecosystems and to have affinity groups of people who believe in the same thing and who want the same thing, that's the way forward, if you ask me. Yeah. And it ends up being a heck of a lot of fun, too. I mean, it's yeah. it's hard and sometimes it's depressing and discouraging and there might be some rats and other stuff. But boy, 
people like us will tell you you're gonna remember these times as the good old days because <laughs> because I sure do. We're looking at, at at least I think a decade of really really hard times for young people. I don't think being on a on a career track for most people is is is, is a real expectation. No, there's no job. You know? There's no job to do. I mean, we can still work. We could still you know hack out a living maybe of some kind or hopefully get a dole soon. Yeah. But there there is in these dark moments there is the time and space for. Uh, creative output like at no other times and uh it it is the time for the counterculture or or those with countercultural urges cultural urges i'd rather call it yeah. the counter yeah. to cultural to, urges sure to begin you know that this is this it 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 may very well be the beginning of a new golden time new golden age of cultural production the most important thing for some, for young people i think to to keep in mind is they need to identify themselves they have to figure out who they're going to be and not let and not let a worldwide you know depression or everything that's going on stop that from happening for them let's see it all right richard i'm going <laughs> to let you go on and live live some of your life i'm thankful for your time and your work and and your uh, and your mind your mind your dangerous dangerous mind we've been friends now i think 25 years right yeah i met you outside and interactive in, uh, in ninety-five, in, in early ninety-six. Yeah, in L.A. Early ninety-six. Yeah. When you were smoking a cigarette, waiting for a cab, because you would, you lived in L.A. but did not drive. <laughs> yeah, I lived in L.A. for four years without a car. I know. I always respected that on some, but and that was before Uber, when you had to call but, like Bluebird or whoever to get a ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it, when somebody that will live in L.A. for for four years without a car, they are a bloody-minded person. Yes. Watch out for them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was my dear friend Richard Metzger speaking with me over the phone from his home in Cincinnati. You can see some of Richard's thinking and favorite culture at DangerousMinds.net. You can find out more about Richard and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporter of this show, gain access to the new Team Human Discord discussion boards, free stuff and books, and join subscribers like Nico Ratu, Raphael Font, Nicole Wheeler, and Nina Vidovenkova. You can read written versions of my monologues as well as the serialized Team Human manifesto at medium.com slash team human. These are trying times. We are over the lip of the event horizon now, and things are only going to get weirder. Please be gentle with those around you, and stoic as you can be when people's rage turns against you. We are in this together, and the means justify the ends. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chaplin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. And you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.